Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Welcome, and we're glad that you're on. This morning, we have Mr. Stuart Reed uh, on the air with us. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. I'm really glad that you've taken time to come on today, and we're going to talk about food co-ops. So you are the first executive director of something called a food cooperative initiative. What is that? Well, Food Co-op Initiative was a great idea that was born uh, almost 16 years ago when some of the co-op folks that involved in co-op development, uh, National Co-op Bank, National Co-op Grocers, Blooming Prairie Foundation, uh, I'm leaving somebody out, Cooperative Development Services Consulting Group, they got together and said, hey, we're getting a lot of inquiries. People want to start new food co-ops. How do we help them? Uh, you know, they take takes them a long time to get open, and then they, they don't have a lot of skills they need always. They, they make mistakes along the way. So let's figure out a way that we can make that happen quicker and with more success. And they started a pilot project called at the time called Food Co-op 500, which eventually became the nonprofit Food Co-op Initiative. And at the, I was on as the contracted director uh, after about the first year as a task force, oversaw Food Co-op 500, stayed on as the executive director when it became a formal organization. Here I am now. Okay. Here you are now. Though, How did you get involved in the food co-op business anyway? Well, all the way back to college, my very first co-op experience was going to a tiny little corner food co-op. There were quite a few of them in the Twin Cities in the early years. This would have been about 73, probably, or 72. And uh, I volunteered a little bit. And uh, a year or two later, I found myself needing a part-time job, and there was an opening at the Seward Co-op. So I, I joined the worker, the collective there at the time. We were collectively managed. And uh, it just went on from there. Uh, I put my time in in several different co-ops, including the Dance Warehouse, and came back to Seward again later as their general manager for a while before going to Northfield. And I was the first GM for a startup there called the Just Food Co-op. So let, let me cut you off. I want to go back a little bit first. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to 72, 73. When you said Twin Cities, what city was that you were in? I'm sorry, Minneapolis-St. Paul. Okay. It was in it was in Minneapolis, northeast Minneapolis, and called the Northeast Food Co-op. And, and what what were you majoring in in college? Oh, uh, you have to ask that, huh? Yeah. Yes, I had a, a very relevant major. I was taking. I was a German major. German major. So that really yes. helped you in food co-ops. I got it. It yeah. did. Yes, yeah. tremendously. <laughs> not farming. Uh, well, not banking. Not business. Yeah, you ask people, what are you going to do with that degree? And they tell you, well, you could sell insurance maybe. And so, you know, food co-op sounded better than that. Okay. So a lot of different jobs starting in 72 and in the 
Were you bagging food to start oh, off? At, at that point, we were a, a group of about five or six people at Buried who did everything. You know, we shared all the responsibilities, cashiering, stocking, ordering, management, decision-making, the whole works. So that was your real education. It was. You, you, and, your uh, formal education was German and your practical beneficial education from a career on center the yes, <laughs> on the job training yeah. okay when you got the, you got the whole sense of running the business then with your in the all of those decision making at a, such a young age too well relatively yes it sure, sure seems young now but uh, i read the i had the great advantage of during my time at seward also being able to attend a three-week intensive management class that was being done at that time at the university of wisconsin and that was my real, uh, where I went from, hey, we, how do you order and how do you manage a business? We do, Instead of doing it by your bootstraps, actually understanding how to read a financial statement, how to, how to manage inventory and what margin control looked like, things that made a, a business successful in the long term that we didn't always understand in those early years. So it made it successful or it caused it to fail? Yeah. Okay. Right. It, managing margins is talking about managing how much profit you make on each product that you sell. Yeah, basically, you're right. How do you how do you price things appropriately so that they're affordable to people, but you make enough money that you can afford to pay all of your bills? Why would you want to be concerned about if it's affordable to people? I thought in business you're just trying to make as much profit as you can make. What are you talking about? Yeah, affordable no, you to know people. better than that. This is a co-op. It's not your everyday average business. You know, and it, even in those days, uh, the earliest years, there was a, a to, you, we were open to everyone. Anyone could shop at the store. Uh, to be a member, you had to volunteer some time. Uh, and membership was a whopping $6 a lifetime. But, you know, you put in a little bit of volunteer time and you also got a discount. Now, we've, we've changed practices since then, obviously. Though some of that wasn't very sustainable. But... If we didn't have people in the community coming in to shop that could afford to, then the store couldn't, wouldn't stay open. It was as simple as that. And the goal of the co-op, we were very politically minded. It was to, to serve as many people as we could. We also had the contradictory or the balancing act of wanting to sell the purest, best food we could. And that food isn't always as cheap as the lowest cost food is. It usually isn't. And for good reason. So your goals were different from what I learned in the MBA program. I was in there from 74 to 76. And what I was taught was it's return on investment. Every decision was what's the return on investment? What's the highest return on investment for the shareholders? Right. And you went to University of Wisconsin and this training that you had management training. And you're talking about what's affordable and gives you the profit that you need for sustainability, not the best necessary profit that you need, can get. I don't think return on investment was ever mentioned. Well, <laughs> oh. we were looking at, you know, bottom line, what's your, you've got to get, you've got no margin, no mission. You know, that we've been saying that for a long time in the co-op world, and I wasn't the one who invented it. But, no margin, so, no mission? Right. Okay. In order to be, to do good in the community, you have to do well financially. And if you don't have a profitable business, if you can't sustain the business, there's nothing you can do for the rest of the mission that you want to accomplish. 
So you have to at least be able to survive financially. And that's that's the goal, to, to make sure that the owners of the co-op, who are the shoppers of the co-op, are getting their needs met in the community. You don't have to worry about shareholders' return. The return for shareholders in co-op is the services and goods that they want are available to them the way they want them. And so we provide that return to our investors or our members, really, and nobody has to worry about how big their their share of the profits is at the end of the year. It's based on how much they patronize the business. So you use it a lot, you get your share back. And the rest of it goes to strengthening the business and, and the mission work of the business. So the mission is the main focus. So I've been doing this program now for almost nine years, Stuart. October will be nine years. I have it that capitalistic businesses, the ones that I learned about in my MBA program, had three Ps that they were their mission, and co-ops have three Ps. So that's where they have in common. After that, the Ps make it the difference. The three Ps for a capitalistic model, first, profit, second, profit, third, profit. Okay, that's the mission. And that's what I was taught, unfortunately, in the MBA program. Milton Friedman Economists said that the whole reason for a business is the greatest return on investment for the shareholders. And unfortunately, that's what the U.S. has accepted and adopted. The basis of the capitalist system. Yeah. There's some other conversations around that, but that one is what we're talking about now. And the three P's for the cooperative business is what you said, people first, who are the shareholders and what do they want and what they're looking at, and then planet second, what's best for the planet, and third is profit. You got to have the profit. You got to have the margins in order to do for people and for the planet. Without the profit, it doesn't succeed. Okay, right. got it. But that's not the main reason. And so you're looking at these other variables when you make a decision, not just profit. It's a very big balancing act. It's a challenging job for a manager of a food co-op to balance all of the stakeholder needs. You know, again, got to the bottom line. And to get to that bottom line. You've got to have great staff, and you want to pay them appropriately and give them decent benefits. You've got to have great products on the shelf, and you want to pay your local suppliers fairly so that they can stay in business and continue to supply you. You've got <laughs> okay. you've got the people shopping at the store that would like to see low prices on great food. Uh, you know, how do you make all of that come together so that everybody's happy? You, know, you say the big challenge. I could see it as being. A- a lot of fun to, when you can win that variable, that that equation. Yeah. You know, how, how, you, how do you exactly. support the all these managers, people? The best managers do it. Uh, and, and that's one of the, well, it's frankly one of the challenges we have with startup food co-ops is finding people of that caliber to, to run the stores. So Ed Whitfield was on this show, and he was talking about a failed food co-op in um, Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, he was saying the management is the first reason. They, I think in three years, it took eight years to get started, and the three years or so that they were in business, they had five managers or something. Yeah. Yeah, It was a very sad situation. I worked with that co-op. We we as an organization worked with it quite a bit and uh, had high hopes for them because they had some – Excellent leadership trying to get that store open. They really did a good job of community engagement. In the big picture, it turned out that there wasn't enough local community support. 
as the way the store executed its vision. Um, you know, the, and again, these right management was a part of that. Uh, they weren't able to, to make that balancing act between price, affordability, quality of food, paying staff, and then people turned away because they thought it was too expensive. And yeah, he was saying that changing that changing that mentality is is difficult. They normally yes. go into places buying a dollar for some sugar, a cereal, and then coming in and getting cereal. Real maple much syrup at five ninety nine a pound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he was saying this management was first, the margins was second, and then it's sort of like the marketing, the getting the a movement going, getting people to move from those other stores into a store that provides nutritional foods. I would almost put the marketing higher in the list myself because we see it repeatedly with new stores that have done so much right in planning the finances and operations, but haven't got the word out far enough and deeply enough into the community so that people understand. I mean, people, we've seen the surveys. A lot of people in this country have no idea what a cooperative really is. They have strange ideas and wrong ideas, and sometimes every once in a while they actually understand it. So we have to help. That's part of the outreach of opening a store helping people understand what this business is. It isn't some scary thing where you have to be a member or you have to be a hippie or, or anything else. We're going to take our first break and we're going to come back. We're talking to Stuart about opening up food co-ops, the benefits and the failures of them. We'll be right back and talk more about this. Don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We have Mr. Stuart Reed on who's talking about food co-ops um, and what makes them successful. And in some cases, they don't, they're not successful and they fail. We just before break said that marketing is critically important, management is important, and margins to meet all of the needs of the different stakeholders in a, in a cooperative. So, Stuart, uh, you've been doing this food cooperative initiative for a while, starting food co-ops. Um, how do you how do you help them get funded? That's such a huge part of cooperation or getting keeping food co-ops working and then also starting new ones. It's money. Yeah. Well, and that has only gotten harder as costs have gone up dramatically in the last few years, especially for equipment and fixtures. But then you look at the cost of lumber and build-out and store renovations is way up, too. So it's a big ticket. And traditionally, uh, I wouldn't say traditionally, but in the in the recent past, a lot of co-ops funded about half of their budget or maybe even a little more from member contributions of one kind or another from the member equity when they joined the co-op to loans or preferred shares that the owners members bought from the for the co-op and therefore made additional investments beyond their owner share and that they've raised many co-ops have raised more than million dollars sometimes multi-million dollars through owner participation which is ideal and when you think about self-control and uh, lack of uh, avoiding uh, outside influences on the co-op it's it would be what you hope for but that's a lot of money to raise several million dollars out of a community and not all communities can do that 
So uh, we're seeing other forms of funding coming up in the ranks, uh, and charitable contributions is, is certainly one of them. Uh, the foundation support, in some relatively rare cases, individual support at high numbers, and they can. This is possible usually through uh, the use of fiscal sponsors because co-ops are not charitable organizations. Uh, a lot of organizations and individuals are reluctant to make donations directly to a co-op for that reason. But they can make that through a fiscal sponsor that can use that money to support the co-op, and that's proven to be very effective. Who would be a fiscal uh, sponsor for your for FCI or for a co-op that you are working with? Uh, there's, we encourage them to find a local charitable organization with an aligned mission that's willing to do that for them. Okay. Uh, that brings some benefits in terms of local exposure and possibly some expertise that the nonprofit can also provide along with the funding. Uh, we do have several cooperative development centers that will act as fiscal sponsors. Most of us are incorporated as nonprofits. And uh, CDS, Cooperative Development Services in St. Paul, Kevin Edberg is the executive director, has a program, for example. There, he's not the only one. Several centers do, but I've worked with him closely because we have um, share some territorial interests. Uh, so that's there's always a place to go, is, uh, whether it's a local charity or if it's a national development center. There's somebody that can do it for you. And the other place that we're seeing increasing numbers coming in in terms of support is from city, county, even state level uh, economic development funding, whether it's job funding, uh, renovation grants, uh, you name it. Some of the same kinds of funding streams that large corporations turn to cities for. There's no reason why a co-op shouldn't be even more eligible for TIF funding, tax increment financing, for example, or other kinds of city support for job development as a large corporation. We're, we're a better business. We're going to support the local community more than that big business is, even if to start with, they're offering more jobs. So there's that. There's even some federal money. Uh, there are certain grants that from USDA that are available to rural communities, and there's uh, some. Uh, a couple of co-ops have been able to use APRA funds. Uh, they've been able to convince their community that that investment in rebuilding the local economy post-COVID is appropriate. And have is that the American some, Recovery? Uh, I'm sorry. A yeah, uh, yeah. I wish I, I knew you'd ask that. Okay. Uh, the American, I think it's American Recovery Plan Act or something like that. Yeah, ARPA, I think it's what it is. Um, but I do know Dr. Stacy Sutton was on the air a couple of weeks ago, and she said that Chicago, for their helping to increase all co-ops, not just food co-ops, but all co-ops, they got fifteen million dollars from that funding to help the their co-op ecosystem, the training. Um, technical support, funding, legal advocacy, that this $15 million is what the city of Chicago was putting for this process, and that came from federal money. So, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. We know a couple of individual co-ops that have gotten larger five-figure, six-figure uh, grants through that program. Okay. So money's a huge one. Um 
what keeps F F Food Co-op initiative going? Where do you get your money? <laughs> Where does our money come from? Um, well, we are we have been fortunate that since we incorporated formally as as a nonprofit, we're eligible for for grant funding from more sources, including the USDA. And uh, except for one year, we've always gotten a rural cooperative development grant, which makes up a significant part of our budget, uh, about 40%. And the rest of our funding has come from our original, a lot of it from our original uh, founders. The, the National Co-op Bank has been a consistent and reliable provider of both leadership and funding. National Co-op Grocers, likewise, the Blooming Prairie Foundation has been a huge supporter. In fact, they made a million-dollar commitment when we incorporated as a nonprofit to ensure that we would have funding for the first five years, uh, $200,000 a year for five years. And that, that, was a, that made it possible for us to hire more than just one person on and to start expanding our, our programming. So we also get quite a bit of money from of the existing food co-op community and from individuals that have been participants in that in starting co-ops or have, uh, are consultants for co-ops that see the value in what we do and make contributions that way. But we don't charge any fees for our services. Uh, aside from attend, you know, registration fees for larger conferences, everything we do is provided at no cost. So we are reliant on the co-op community and other sources to support our work. So the co-op community helping is is principle six, uh, cooperation among co-ops, I imagine. Is it? That would be certainly one way to look at it, yeah. And, and principle seven, concern for community. So it's concern for all communities, not only your own, but other communities, and they can help say, here's some money. And arguably self-interest. Without a growing sector, uh, you know, we, we, we have the opportunity to add a lot more food co-ops around the country. There's, there's still relatively few and far between when you think of the big picture in the grocery world. And that more co-ops means more strength for purchasing, more awareness among the population, uh, all kinds of benefits that we can accrue by growth. And so uh, a lot of the new co-ops that have started in the last 16 years are now some of them are opening their second storefront. Some of their, you know, in the River Valley market, I think is, uh, I think they were over 40 million before their new, new store opened. So it, new co-ops are contributing a lot to the uh, bigger picture. So um, I traveled across the country a couple times during COVID. I bought an RV. I went back and forth three times and I would, look for whenever I had to go shopping to replenish the food in my RV, I would look for a food co-op. And I was amazed yeah. at most cities I found one. Okay. It was interesting and fun to go in and talk to folks in a food co-op. Um, so they are far and few between, but on my trips back and forth, I was able to find food co-ops. And there's mainly major cities I would look, but I could yeah. find food co-ops. Um, yeah, we've... There's a great book, by the way, that uh, I don't know if you've probably seen it. Uh, this could be ours. It was done by a friend of ours, John Steinman, who uh, did like you did. Uh, he did a cross-country trip in a van uh, to promote a, a different book that he put out. 
took pictures all along the way, and it's now a beautiful coffee table style book with pictures of food co-ops across the country and uh, some of their special programs and their signage and their it's just fun. I'm going to look at that because uh, my lady and I were talking about doing the same thing uh, because we were also looking for African-American co-ops or or Native American or brown folks co-ops as folks. But the reason I was asking you about the money, I'm going to go back to this. You have a new endowment fund that you are coming up at FCI. why Why do you need to create that fund? Well, this was an idea that came up after I let people know that I was planning to retire at the end of the year. Somebody said, well, this is a great time of transition to to approach people for uh, a significant funding that will help ensure the future of our organization. And so uh, the idea was let's put, like the million dollars that got us launched as a nonprofit, let's put aside a million dollars in reserves to cover shortfalls in funding, possible loss of USDA grants, maybe for a little growth, but we need to ensure the future of the organization. Okay, so you have been helping food co-ops to get started throughout the U.S., working within the co-op world, other food co-ops helping funding, getting funding from different locations, different organizations to do this, and now you want to start your own endowment fund for future growth, sustainability and future growth. We're going to talk more about this when we come back and perhaps where the, some of the new food co-ops are starting. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, Everything Co-op. We talk about the cooperative model and particularly the differences between the co-op model and the capitalistic model. And in the U.S., it seems like people love the capitalistic model. That's all we teach in schools. That's all we learn about. And it's this hierarchy model of somebody on top, and they give people directions on the bottom. And that's what we find in our homes. That's what we find in our churches and our organizations. And that's what we find in business. But co-ops is a different type of business. And that's what we're talking about today, the benefits of co-ops, but particularly the food co-ops. And Mr. Stuart Reed is our guest who's been in this his whole career, starting out in college and working his way from a bag boy up to running and managing food co-ops and then helping to get food co-ops started. So, Stuart, before we took the break, you were talking about this new endowment fund. We we had talked about different ways that co-ops, food co-ops get funded, different ways that the FCI, Food Cooperative Initiative, have gotten funded. But you're finding that sometimes, particularly when you don't get the USDA funding, that you don't have enough. So you're looking to create an endowment fund. If somebody wants to donate, invest, find out more information, what would they do? How would they contact you or this fund? Yeah, we aren't formally calling it an endowment fund. We liked that term and still do for that matter. But we were told by our accountants that that might mean something different from what we intended. So... The name is still evolving, but the purpose is to ensure the financial viability of the organization as we go forward uh, through transition times. For people that are interested in supporting us in this long-term vision, right now the best approach would be to contact me directly. You can go on our website, fci.coop, and go to the donate page and make a contribution that way if you like. That's fine. 
Uh, but if you're looking at a larger contribution in particular and would like more details about the fund, you can contact me, and it's Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at F-C-I dot co-op. I'd be happy to talk to you, explain it, um, whatever you need. So right now we're working, our team, our campaign team is working on getting the initial commitments from some of our long-term supporters as a as a basis before we go out with the, promoting the program. But that will be happening very soon, and uh, we'll be launching it and promoting it in time for up-and-coming conference, which is in May. So fci.coop is the webpage. That's www.fci.coop. And that COOP is that tag as opposed to .com or .net or anything else, but that's so that cooperators can identify themselves as a co-op. And if you want more information, you can reach uh, Stuart Reed at Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at fci.coop. Okay, Stuart, so that's a way that can donate some money for an extremely worthy cause because you're helping all of these food co-ops get started, probably from the ideal stage into the implementation of of the co-op and maybe beyond that. But how many co-ops are you all working with? How many different ideas, or how many different co-ops are you working with right now? Yeah, well, it, it changes almost daily, but we have a, right around 83, 84 that are in some stage of active organizing. They've, they've incorporated, they've got a border steering committee, and they're, they're out there doing the work. And in addition to that, we get inquiries on a regular basis, and we keep track of them for at least a year to see if anything develops, if they're moving forward, or if they've decided to do something else. And we have an active list of inquiries that's about the same, almost 90 or a little more of people that have asked us about co-ops and may or may not have started doing the actual organizing yet. So for ease of, of talking about this, I want to say 200 uh, active and inquiries about, about co-ops throughout the U.S. Do you have any sense, because I'm African-American and I'm really, I believe that this co-op model is not only an answer to the wealth disparities in the U.S. and the income disparities, but I have it, it is the, well, perhaps besides reparations, but it is the answer to this gap in wealth. The, the white families in America have, on before COVID, had about $171,000 of net worth, what they owned minus what they owed, where a black family had 17000 about 10% less. And I was told on this show, I haven't been able to verify it, but in D.C., that gap is 81 times. That white has 81 times more wealth than a black family in Washington, D.C. So that gap is huge and perhaps even growing with COVID because those jobs that, that blacks, browns, indigenous people normally have were the ones that we said was necessary jobs, but the ones that yeah. got laid off or got COVID but more because they had to be out there. So with this wealth gap, what you're providing is tremendous. And I'd like to know, getting a sense of uh, brown and black indigenous communities, do you see any trends in how many people, how many co-ops or food co-ops particularly? Very definitely. You mentioned earlier the Renaissance co-op, and they were sort of the harbinger of a change in, in what we were getting for interest. And I think they 
they themselves will say they weren't a failure. They, they were a learning experience for other co-ops. And they inspired a lot of other communities of color to consider it as a, an option. So we are, since then, and we have seen considerable uptick in the number of inquiries we're getting and the number of active projects, primarily in Black-led communities, less so in Latinx, uh, some indigenous, but definitely a change. And I think that accelerated even considerably after the George Floyd murder. It reinvigorated the Black community's interest in how we can we take care of ourselves better than this. We're not getting what we need in the current system. Uh, and I'm putting words in people's mouths, but that's the way. Oh, no, I think that's true. From from my interviews yeah. with the guy in Flint, Michigan, and the guy in Detroit, that was exactly yeah. true that we're starting. And I think Detroit's ready to open now, isn't it? Do you know? Well, they are just they just broke ground. Okay. Uh, they're, they're a year away from opening. And, and North Flint is, is a, just a tiny bit further along. So they're both next year, probably. Okay. But they've come a long ways. And uh, we did have a very diverse community, primarily black. In, in Columbus, Ohio, that opened the Gem City Market early this year. And there's uh, quite a few more in the pipeline. And uh, I'd say that as far as our new inquiries go, the percentage of coming from communities of color is, is higher than ever and uh, seems to be increasing over time. Do you have any sense of how many or percentage-wise or anything like that? Yeah, I think among the active startup co-ops, and uh, it's probably in the range of about 10%. But again, if you would have asked me that five years ago, it would have been one. And in the inquiries, it could be as high as 20%, maybe higher. Okay. Sometimes we don't know the ethnic, racial background of groups until we've worked with them for a while, uh, because we don't see them face-to-face, and it isn't. we don't want to make assumptions about people. So I I live in Washington, D.C., and I know of one group that was trying to start. They've been trying to start for five years or so before COVID, and I've, I've been told through the co-op stakeholders group here there's four different groups that are interested, two in Ward 7 and two in Ward 8, which have food deserts, food apartheid or whatever you want to call it, No, the, mm-hmm. natural, the nutritional foods they hard to get. So do you have any sense of, are you working with any of those communities in D.C.? Yeah, we've been working with one for the one that's been around the longest that we've worked with for a while. In fact, I ran into one of their organizers in D.C. when I was there for the Co-op Impact Conference uh, a few years back. And we had the, the big event on the mall. And they've been attending our conferences up and coming. And, and I think they're, they're starting to get some good progress. Um, we've heard from a couple others uh, have been around long enough to have a as good a sense of where they're going, but it's great to see that. I mean, outside of a couple of legacy, I don't know, legacy co-ops, co-ops that were formed 40 plus years ago, Silver Springs, Tacoma, right in the district itself, I don't think there is or has been a food co-op in the history I can remember. Well, there's, there is a food co-op in Maryland called GLUT, G-L-U-T, yeah. and um, it's in Prince George's County. Tacoma and Silver Springs, I believe, are in Montgomery County. But Glut used to be in D.C., and they moved Uh, to Maryland, which was interesting. And that's a worker-owned co-op. The other two, I believe, are consumer-owned co-ops that the people that shop in those co-ops own it. And Glut is a worker-owned. The people that work in there own it. Uh, That was interesting. 
Okay. The majority of the food co-ops are consumer-owned, although there are a handful of, of worker-owned around the country. And we're getting a lot of interest in hybrid models where with a, both a consumer and worker component. And uh, the Gem City market, for example, is, is structured to be that. Uh, are, are you fin- how are you spelling Gem? Gem, like a diamond gem, G-E-M. Okay. I was saying J-I-M. I said, that, I don't think that's what you're oh, saying. Yeah. <laughs> Gem City, where does that come from? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So these food co-ops are starting all over all over the U.S. You're getting more. You're getting more interest from communities of color because communities of color are going back to what I believe is the history of of Africans and African Americans is everybody working together, pooling the resources to help the to, to help the community and therefore help each other. The self-help yeah. is the first principle of cooperation. But you self-help through community. Self, you help yourself by working together and helping others. Um, so, yeah, people are getting back to that and understanding we have a tradition. And just real quickly, um, Dr. Jessica Gurdon-Imhard wrote a book called Collective Courage. She's been on the show, I think, five times. I, I keep her book right beside me. That's my cooperative Bible. It's the history of blacks and cooperation. Just to show you that's right here, a history of African-Americans, cooperative economic thought and practices. And so she said when she first started this, which had been about 22 years ago now, took her 15 years of research, that folks said blacks don't do co-ops. That's a white hippie thing because the, the brand then was white hippies creating food co-ops. Okay eating yogurt and granola and stuff. Okay. But it turns out there's a tremendous history. Martin Luther King. Uh, every- Black Panthers in the Bay Area are setting up cooperatives. Uh, yeah, it's a very rich history. I didn't know that Black Panthers were until recently, and they had a tremendous community piece. I only knew about them through the papers because I was in West Virginia growing up. I was in junior high and high school when they were – in the early 60s when they got started. And they were just, for me, they were broadcast as black militant people with machine guns trying to overtake the government. And there was so much to that group. And I'm just learning about what all they were doing and co-ops were there. So it, it's it's really a part of of our history. I also have from Dr. Sutton that training in the co-op system, you need training, you need technical support, you need the funding, which we've talked about, you need the legal to both set it up and then laws in a particular state. You need advocacy for all of it, getting the government support, like you said, um, Department of Agriculture and any other organizations to get funding and technical support. And I have promotions. We need to talk about co-ops. So of that, those six things, what does FCI do, Food Cooperative Initiative? Yeah, well, our primary mission is is to do technical assistance, to provide the resources, guidance, tools that people need, training, and do it at a cost essentially zero that makes it accessible to everyone. We also promote co-ops through all all of the work we do, and that's an important part. I agree with you. Marketing cooperation is definitely a priority that needs to be addressed. So I want to come back and talk about the rest of those things that you do in a co-op world, but we'll take our final break. And Stuart, I tell you, this hour goes by real quick. We'll be right back. All right. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. 
you know, this is everything co-op, and we've been on the air almost nine years, and National Cooperative Bank has been our supporter for all of that time. Matter of fact, we started talking about this show in June nine years ago, and our first show was October. And I took it to Chuck Snyder from NCB and said, here's an idea. want to promote co-ops. People don't know about them, and Stuart has already said that. He's our guest today. People don't know about co-ops. And in the black community, people definitely did not know about co-ops or the rich history. And NCB was for us, and Stewart said they were for FCI, both a leader and funder. They provided leadership and funding. And Stuart, I want to say they, were, they did one more thing for us. I had not thought about the word leadership, but they were extremely helpful in leadership. And we had an advisory council NCB was very helpful in. But they were also our number one cheerleader. They told people about us. They promoted the show. They told us different people we they thought we should have on the show and different. I knew about housing co-ops because that's how I got into this space. But all of the other co-ops, whether it's credit union or food co-ops or all of the farming types of co-ops or artist co-ops, I didn't know anything about it. So this nine years has just been a great learning experience to me. And I'm so glad that you're on, Stuart, talking to us about food co-ops, particularly up-and-coming food co-ops. And the up-and-coming conference is going to be on May 19th and 21st. And Deb Trocher from the Indiana CDC, maybe? Indiana Cooperative Development Center, yeah. Okay, CDC, Cooperative Development Center. And they do a wonderful job with all of this training. So what's your role in the up-and-coming? What's FCI's role? Well, currently we're a partner with Deb and the Indiana Cooperative Center in putting on this conference. And Deb founded it, I think, 12, 13 years ago. It was intended to be a, a place where startups and small co-ops could get together and learn from each other. It's grown into a national conference with attendance of 300 or more in the last few years. Uh, co-ops from all over the country come together for two days of workshops uh, specifically focused on the needs of startup food co-ops from some of the best minds that we can bring together, uh, consultants, people like ourselves at, at Food Co-op Initiative. The co-ops themselves do case studies and talk about their innovative projects that have been successful. And we also have parties and fun. Fun is an important part of developing co-ops. You, you have to not take yourselves too seriously all the time. And on Thursday, we have a couple of special sessions. We have a day-long session led by and for Black-led co-ops the whole day. And we have a, another session on food systems. And that's part of a bigger project uh, looking at the Chicago market area and the potential for developing a strong collaborative food system for the cooperatives that are forming there now. And another one on, on uh, governance uh, and membership, just a more general topic for people that are there early and, and want to get in depth on something. So it's a little of everything for everyone. Uh, everybody comes away inspired, have a great time. and uh, We keep it as inexpensive as we possibly can so that we can people can afford to come. So that's in Madison, Wisconsin this year? In Madison, Wisconsin, a great co-op city uh, with a great co-op, the Willie Street Co-op, uh, acting as one of our partners and hosts. Uh, we'll be having self-guided tours for their stores for people that want to go, and uh, they'll be present at the conference as well. So it sounds like in this up-and-coming, the, the ecosystem, the co-op ecosystem I talked about, it was training. You're doing that. 
technical support, yep. funding. You're talking about funding and different ways to start a co-op and where you get your money from, all the different things that you talked about earlier. Legal, how do you set it up? What's the structure look like? How do you do that? And advocacy, how do you work with your government entities, the city, state, federal government entities, both to get the right kinds of legal structure in place for to start it in that particular city and some city you may, you may have to go to another state if they don't have the laws but how you get those laws and then promotion promoting the co-ops both cooperation among co-ops which is the sixth principle of co-ops and by the way training education and information is the fifth principle of cooperation you also mentioned member equity that you put in some money take out some money i think that's the second principle the first one is open for everybody doesn't make any difference about race or gender or religion or politics just know it's open if it's a co-op it's open you just can go to the yeah. co-op so those are the co-op system and a few other co-op principles we've already and we talked about the seven and that is concern for the community that's what cooperation yeah. is yeah. yeah and i think food co-ops live that principle as well as any sector. Uh, it's priority to, to be engaged in the community, to do outreach education, involved in other community events and activities. Um, it's very, very much a part of our, our genetics, if you will. <laughs> so the other thing about the fifth principle of training information is that what I like about the cooperative space is people share information. You said they're case studies yes. and people yeah. at different co-ops are providing even the self tours is how do we operate and how might you begin to look at our systems and make them your systems or tailor them to you that sharing of data you don't find that in the in the capitalistic model we, we hoard the data because that's our competitive advantage da, 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 da. but not in the co-op space it's amazing how many times i talk to groups and they they can't believe that they went and talked to another co-op and Right away, they gave them all this information. So it's like, never expected that. It's wonderful. And that's part of the benefit of having the conference is people get to meet each other, hear each other's stories, start sharing information, and that builds to a bigger collaborative community. So Malik from Detroit, when I went yes. up to, to the conference, he got up in the general conference and said, I want to hear from other black co-operators. Um, this is mainly white folks telling us how to do it, and our culture is a bit different, so I want to hear from other black co-operators. And it sounds like now you've implemented that. You heard them, and now you have Thursday black-led co-ops giving out information. Right. And Malik is, in fact, one of the people helping to plan that. So, yes, that definitely we tried to be responsive to things like that. And we have a whole track of, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, workshops that are not specifically all about black co-ops, but they're open to other everyone, as well as the, the session on Thursday that is for black lit. So Martin Luther King, W.E.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, Ella Jo Baker, there were just so many blacks that were into co-ops, and to have a Malik and others today talking about co-ops and the benefits of cooperation for our communities and how we need to come together and support ourselves and build up wealth, build up income. Yeah, that's yeah, what it's there's all about. A, there's a tremendous ecosystem developing among the black cooperators. I had the pleasure of attending the Black Cooperative Agenda Conference in Baltimore a few weeks ago with Ron Hans put together. 
and a uh, hundred people there. It was just amazing the the strength, the commitment, and uh, the inspiration that I heard for development of black cooperatives. It was a great thing. So I met Stacy Sutton through another conference that Ron Hans had done in Baltimore. He put together a really nice conference. And I'm on a committee called the UN. The UN has declared 2015 to 2024 the decade for people of African descent. And I'm on a committee that's looking at the southern states, the 12 southern states called the Black Belt. And that's where today 50%, over 50% of African-Americans live in those states. But we're looking at a plan to take to the UN of what we feel that the United States owe to the black community. And cooperation is in the middle of that. And so my co-chair, John Zipper, and I are constantly looking, well, co-ops are all about self-help, not just what the government can do, but what we can do for each other. And so our position was going to be what we can do and what we need from the government to help us do what we can do. <laughs> so it's that a makes bit, sense. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, a little bit different from some of the other committees because it is the focus of cooperation and self-help. So. Give me one more time. If I want to make a donation, what would I do? Or if I want more information, what would I do? Well, you can either go directly to our website, and there's a donate button and a, and a page about how to support us. Uh, that's FCI, the initials from Food Co-op Initiative, FCI.coop. Or you can contact me if you have questions or, or want to discuss it first. Uh, that's Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, at F-C-I dot co-op. You can send me a note and say, hey, give me a call. I'll talk to you on the phone. I'll talk to you by email, whatever you need. So Cabot Creamy is just starting to help us financially, and they've been a help all throughout. Have they helped you guys at all with this? They have. They've supported uh, our conference. They've supported uh, our newsletter by running a little ad in there. Um, some of our other projects, uh, they've, they've helped out as sponsors. So, yeah, Cabot's great. We love them. Yeah, it's just another gap of cooperation among co-ops and getting the word out. They seem to be really, really good. And I love Roberta McDonald. She's phenomenal. So, Stuart, I want to thank you for being on. Our time is up. The hour did go by real quick. Thank you for all of the information. Sure did. Thank you, Vernon. I appreciate the chance to talk to you and and the co-op listeners. And once again, uh, we really appreciate the support everybody gives us. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody else out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live this week cooperatively.